Take a Bible, find the Gospel of John, chapter 11. There are some notes you can follow along, notes in your bulletin that is largely worthless. That's the bulletin, not the notes. Notes are good. So this is week two of three in the Gospel of John chapter 11. Three Sundays we're going to spend looking at this story of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, I want to start with the broad context, then we'll move to the narrow context, and then we'll talk about the big idea here. Uh, The broad context of the Gospel of John comes actually at the end of the book, John 20, verse 30 to 31, gives us the overarching thematic verse of the Gospel of John. We've read it many, many times. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus performed many signs. Most of them are not written in the Gospel of John. Seven of them are written in the Gospel of John. And John says, I've told you about these seven signs because I want you to believe, not just in God, not just that there's a higher power, but I want you to believe something specific, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. He is the Son of God. And so here are John's seven signs. Jesus turns water to wine. He heals the nobleman's son. He uh, heals a lame man. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals a blind man. And then in chapter 11, he raises Lazarus. This story is in the Gospel of John so that you and I walk away from it saying, you know what? I believe that story's true, and I believe Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. That's the broad context. Now let's talk narrow context for John 11. Roughly three months have passed since the Feast of Dedication where the Jews were seeking to stone Jesus and to arrest Jesus. And if your Bible's open, you can just look up at the previous chapter, John 10, verse 31. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You can look down at verse 39. It says they sought to arrest him. The Jews sought to arrest Jesus, but he escaped from their hands. And when you see that space between the end of John 10 and the beginning of John 11, you understand about three months have gone by. The Feast of Dedication has gone in the rearview mirror. Jesus is now just weeks from dying on the cross. It's enough time, this three-month period, for everyone to calm down a little bit It is not enough time to forget what was happening the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem or in that area. Jesus remembered it. The disciples remembered it. The Jews remembered it. The last time he was there, they were trying to kill him. They were trying to arrest him. Last week, we talked about John 11, the first part, verse 1 to 16. It explains how Jesus got to Bethany. And why he ended up there when he got there. Our passage this morning, John eleven seventeen to 37, explains what happened, at least initially, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, right? The big climax of this story is next week, Jesus actually raising Lazarus. That's the part we all sort of remember. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. We're going to get there. But first, we're going to talk about what happened when Jesus rolled into Bethany. That brings us to the big idea. It's the same as last week. It's the same as next week. It's the big idea for all of John 11. Jesus is the resurrection and 
the life. Jesus is the resurrection and and the life. That's from verse 25. We're going to read it this morning. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. In the Gospel of John, there are seven signs. There are also seven, quote-unquote, I am statements. And these are the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. That's chapter 11 where we're at. And in weeks to come, Jesus will say, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and I am the vine. Jesus is doing two things with these statements. On the one hand, he is very intentionally using the phrase ego eimi in Greek or I am as a callback to the book of Exodus when Moses sees a bush that's burning and he says, if you're sending me back, who in the world am I supposed to tell them sent me? And the Lord says to Moses from the bush, you tell them I am sent you. Jesus is referring to that, but he's also going beyond that to teach his people who he is and to teach his people what he came to accomplish in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So that's the big idea. I'd like us just to read our passage, John 11, starting in verse 17, and then we're going to go down to verse 37. So you can follow along as we read. The Bible says this, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, 
could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's the word of God this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to this story. It's familiar to many of us. Lord, even now we anticipate Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. We think about the wonder and the the glory of that moment, but this morning we pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth as Jesus is talking with Martha and as Jesus is talking with Mary and as Jesus himself is grieving. Father, help us to understand, help us to apply your word to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk this morning about funerals for just a minute. Didn't plan on that just late in the week. I planned on that earlier in the week before life got canceled and everyone sort of got hysterical. But we're going to talk about funerals. Uh, Funerals in West Texas typically have three, you might call it, pieces to them. This isn't to say it's the only way to do a funeral, but it's just sort of typical for uh, church-going Protestant people in West Texas. There's some sort of visitation, there is the funeral service itself, and then there is the burial or some sort of graveside service. You may not always have all three pieces, but those are sort of the pieces that you think about when you plan a service. What's interesting to me, growing up in the Panhandle, West Texas, is when we moved to Kentucky, I learned people in Kentucky don't do funerals like they do them in West Texas. And I just assumed growing up here that everyone does funerals the same, but if you lived in different parts of the country, you know, no, everyone doesn't do funerals exactly the same. And I knew this on some level. I had heard stories from my grandfather. He grew up in Chicago, and uh, he was a teller of a lot of tall tales. And he used to tell this story about uh, someone in his family dying, and the body at that time would stay in the home until the actual funeral service, and they would take turns staying up with the body around the clock. And he swears that one of their relatives at some point in time was in the home several days. The morning of the funeral, this relative popped back to life and really had not died, but had slipped into some sort of coma, and they were back alive, and they called the funeral off, and ate the food. I don't know what happened, but he used to swear that that was real. I don't know if it was real or not, but funerals are different, different parts of the country. And so I'll just give you a few examples of this. In Kentucky, uh, moved there to go to seminary, pastored a church in Kentucky, and the first time someone died in our church and I had to do that service, several of my deacons said, hey, what time do you want to meet us at the visitation? And I said, visitation? Isn't that for like family? And my growing up, that's who went to the visitation. Family went. No one else went. Maybe some really close friends would go, but it was just really for family. And it was really short, maybe 30 minutes. I've been to some that were 15 minutes. You just sort of go in and you have a short visitation. You view the body and you leave. In Kentucky, visitation is a, an event. It's a, a spectacle. It lasts hours. Hours. Everyone in town comes. If you knew this person, if you knew someone who knew this person, if you knew someone who knew someone who knew this person, you all come, and guess what they do at visitation? They visit for hours. They just sit around in the funeral home. It's packed. Almost no one goes to the funerals compared to everyone showing up for the visitation. And so my deacon said, what time are you going? And I said, am I supposed to go? And they said, everyone's going to be there. And they were right. Everyone was there. And you go and you just sort of sit down 
and you visit. It's different than what I had grown up experiencing. Funerals, the actual memorial service, celebration of life, funeral, whatever you want to call it. Growing up in Amarillo, every funeral that I ever attended was in a church, in a sanctuary. Most of them in my church. Some of them, we had family that lived in southwestern Kansas, a, a Catholic side of our family. All of those funerals were in a Catholic church. I thought, that's where you do funerals. You do them in the church. Uh, I pastored for uh, four years in Kentucky. I preached one funeral inside of a church building. All the rest of them were in funeral homes. And I've done funerals at a funeral home here in West Texas, but almost everyone, almost everyone did them at a funeral home in Kentucky. And the one we had in our church, we had in our church because there wasn't a funeral home big enough to house everybody that they expected to show up. And so we reloaded located and we had it at our church. Burial. In my mind, growing up in West Texas, when it's time for the graveside service or the burial, you go to sort of a large public community, town-operated, privately operated cemetery, and there's just a, you know, a section of land set aside for burying people. In Kentucky, rural Kentucky, most of the people that I buried or performed a graveside service of some kind were buried in a family cemetery out in the country. Some of them buried in church cemeteries out on the front lawn. Very, very different than what I had grown up experiencing. We moved to Oklahoma. Oklahoma felt a lot more like West Texas than Kentucky did. I had one interesting experience. We went to a graveside service. I wasn't doing the, the funeral. I didn't do the graveside service, but it was a church member, and we went, and we're there. It's the middle of summer. It was hot. There were no clouds in the sky. I'm telling you, we were cooking. And they had the graveside service. Everything was normal except everyone standing off to the side really didn't listen to anything that was said because there was a pile of shovels off to the side. And I kept thinking, I can't believe they left those shovels out here. So the graveside service goes on like normal. And then the guy speaks up and he says, this is going to be a prairie burial. So we're asking y'all to just stay put for a moment. And they lowered the casket into the ground. The family members went over and they all picked up a shovel. And the pile of dirt, which was also strange, the pile of dirt was right there. One shovel at a time, they put the dirt in the grave. And we stood there and we watched. It was so hot. And they were all in their dress clothes. And there they were, uh, carrying out this prairie burial is what they wanted to do as a family. They moved the whole pile of dirt into the grave. The grave wasn't filled yet. They brought a backhoe and dumped more dirt. And then they finished fin uh, filling the grave up. And it was the strangest thing. I'd never been to anything like that. I'd never experienced anything like that. So when I say there was a funeral... I don't know exactly what comes into your mind. Let me just share with you some things that happened at a Jewish funeral in the first century. Things that are a little bit different than what we might experience here in West Texas. Number one, first century Jews. They tended to bury their dead almost immediately. And this is bad news for my granddad's relative who popped up three days later, but they didn't embalm and the climate just required when somebody passed away, you better make sure they're dead, and we got to put them in the ground. Think about Jesus. He dies. 
They take him down. They don't want to leave him up. They bury him almost immediately. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They drop dead for the same reason, separately in church, and they take them out and they bury them immediately. That's not like they're trying to cover something up or hide anything. That's just kind of how they did it. So when Lazarus died, nobody would have waited around. There wouldn't have been two or three days of planning a memorial service. The first thing that would have happened is they would have put him in to the ground. Another interesting thing in uh, first century Jewish funeral customs, there were seven days of what they called deep mourning, followed by 30 days of light mourning. So from the time the person died, you count it off, you have a week of deep mourning, and when that's done, you have another 30 days of light mourning, and there are expectations for each, one of which you might be interested to know is that during the period of deep mourning, during that first week, even poor families were expected to hire professional mourners. And what was expected is that you would have a couple of people playing the flute and at least one wailing woman. They would just stay at your house. They would play the flute, and they would just wail. Seven days. So when you read about this thing going on at Mary's house and Martha's house, just understand that's sort of part of the mix. you got a couple of people playing the flute. you got a lady whose job it is to just sit outside and wail. That's if you're a poor family. You understand Mary and Martha and Lazarus seem to be a family of means because high up people in Jerusalem came out to Bethany to sit with the family, so they may have had much more than one wailing woman and two flute players. There's a lot of commotion going on. Another thing interesting around this time is there was a, a rabbinical belief. Now, I'm, I'm being very careful here. This is not Bible, okay? Don't, don't leave and say, you won't believe what the pastor said is in the Bible. This is not in the Bible. This is just sort of folklore that the rabbis in this day and time believed and taught they thought that a person's soul hovered around their body for three days when they died. And the rabbi said the, the soul was sort of waiting to see if the body would decompose. I know that's kind of morbid, but that's what they said. And when de decomposition set in, the soul would leave on the fourth day. That's what they taught. Right? We tend to take it for granted when we pick up the Gospel of John and we read in verse 17 that when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had been dead in the tomb four days. That's not Jesus or John, the author of this gospel, saying this is how souls operate when a person dies. That's just them sort of throwing in a detail that all of the Jews at this time would have heard and said, four days? Well, that guy's dead. He's not just kind of dead. He's not just newly dead. That guy is dead. We'll see this next week. They truly, truly knew that Lazarus had passed away. So Jesus comes. Martha hears that he's coming, and she goes out to meet him. She meets Jesus outside of town. And they have a little discussion about theology. We'll come back to that in a minute. Jesus then sends Martha back into town to the house, 
And she says to Mary, Jesus is here and he wants to see you. And so Mary gets up. And when Mary gets up, everyone sort of assumes she's going to weep, to mourn, to cry at the tomb. And so a group of people follow her out to Jesus. I wish I had a great answer for you to the question, why did Jesus stay outside of the town? Why didn't he just go to the house? Why did he hang out outside of town? Maybe he didn't want to provoke some sort of conflict with the Jewish leaders at this moment. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to protect the disciples from the Jewish leaders. You remember last week when Jesus said, we're going to Bethany, Thomas spoke up and he said, last time we were there, they wanted to kill Jesus. They're going to want to kill us too. Let's go die with Jesus. Maybe Jesus knows, yeah, there could be something to that, and so he's protecting them. Maybe he just knows there's going to be flute players and wailing women and commotion and a bunch of mess, and he says, I don't want anything to do with that. I can't talk to these people, my friends, in the midst of that, and so maybe that's why he waits outside of town. We don't know why. Here's what we do know. We know that when Jesus finally ends up at Lazarus' tomb, John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. We're going to come back to the why question there at the end of the message. I just want you to think about that verse. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. How many kids have memorized that verse, number one, when their parents offered them some sort of reward for Bible memorization, right? That's an easy one. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Give me my five bucks. Give me my Chick-fil-A. Give me whatever. It's a good one. You understand that when John wrote this gospel, when the biblical authors wrote these books, there were no chapters and verses in the originals, right? Your Bible looks something like this. There's a gospel according to John. There's a chapter 1. There's verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. On it goes. You understand those weren't there originally. They were added later. Just a little piece of historical trivia for you. In the 13th century, a man named Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, added the chapters pretty much as we have them today. Chapters came along first in the 13th century. In the 16th century, a guy named Robertus Stephanus, he was a Bible printer in Europe, and he's just sort of trying to make it easy for people to study and be on the same page with the biblical text. He adds the verses in, pretty much as we have them today. So these things come along later. And sometimes if you have a study Bible, you might open and read the notes in the bottom, and the note at the bottom may say, you know, this chapter division is kind of in a strange place. It kind of breaks up an idea, and maybe it would be better if the chapter division was in a different spot. Or sometimes the, the note in your study Bible might say, you know, this, the, this verse is kind of odd that we group it this way, and really kind of makes more sense if we included these two ideas together. People can argue and debate and squabble over the, the chapters and the verses. I think this one's perfect. Perfect. It's fitting that these people who added chapters and verses to the Bible are focusing our attention on this one single thought. It's not that they want us to ignore what happens before it or what happens after it, but they're just sort of saying this, this is a thought in and of itself that you need to get. Here it is. Jesus wept. 
When you think about those two words and you think about them in the context of John 11, you come away understanding some really, really important things, some important truths about Jesus. So the question we want to ask and answer is this. What does John 11, 17 to 37, teach us about Jesus? Four ideas. The first one is this. Jesus welcomes our lament. He welcomes our lament. How many of you, if you grew up in Sunday school, had a Sunday school teacher that taught you the Acts prayer acrostic? Any of you remember this? Put it up on the screen. Acts, A-C-T-S, a book in the Bible, and it sort of is a model for how you pray. Adoration, first you tell God how great he is, how much you love him. Confession, you acknowledge your sin to God. Thanksgiving, you give thanks. Supplication is a fancy word for that's where you ask God for things. That's a helpful way that many of us learn to pray. Some of you maybe learned the pray acrostic. Praise, repent, ask, then thank you. Not quite as neat with the acrostic, but you get the idea. These are helpful, right? We teach them to our kids. We teach them to our our grandkids. We teach them at Sunday school and VBS because most of us left to ourselves don't really know how to pray well. We sort of stumble over ourselves, and we don't know what to say, and we feel like we're just saying the same thing over and over and over again, or maybe we just sort of get discouraged and think, "Ah, I'm not smart enough to do it. And these are helpful little sort of acrostics to say, no, 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 just follow this road map in your prayer. They're helpful, but they're missing a letter. And the letter that they're missing is L, and L stands for lament. Let me tell you a biblical definition of lament. Here it is. Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow that is directed to God. It is a passionate. It is not casual. It is a passionate expression of grief, sorrow, hurt, pain that you communicate to God. You may not know this, but there's a lot of lament in the Bible. Did you know if you read the book of Psalms, 70% of the book of Psalms is lament. We think, oh, it's a worship book. It's a book of praise. Well, 70% of it is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow to God, 70%. There's a book of the Bible, the entire book is a lament. It's called Lamentations. And that's all it is from beginning to end. It is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow directed towards God. Ecclesiastes 3, the passage you're probably familiar with that says there's a time for this, there's a season for this, there's a time for this, there's a season for this, says there is a time for lamenting. Jesus welcomes the lament of his people. Look in your Bible at verse 21. Jesus is on his way. Martha meets him outside of town, and immediately Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many of you read that and say, well, that's pretty direct, Martha. No hello, no glad you made it, no how was your flight. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is an expression, and you know there was passion in it, of sorrow and hurt and pain 
directed to Jesus. Look what her sister says. If you flip the page maybe in your Bible or you just look down the chapter, verse 32, Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him and she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word the same. I don't think it's hard to imagine for you or me that in the days leading up to Lazarus's death, Mary and Martha consoled themselves saying something like this, as soon as Jesus gets here, everything's going to be okay. As soon as he gets here, we send a message, he's going to come, as soon as he gets here, everything will be okay. He didn't get there. And in their life, everything was absolutely not okay. And that conversation, that encouragement of when he gets here, it'll be okay, then turned into, you know they talked about it because they said the exact same thing word for word. It turned into, you know, if only Jesus had been here, everything would have been okay. If only Jesus had got here on time, Lazarus would not have died. And as soon as these women see Jesus, that's just what comes out of their mouth. It's lament. It's what you might call a sanctified complaint. There's a difference between a complaint and a sanctified complaint. These complaints are sanctified because they're filled with faith. And when I say filled with faith, this is what I mean. There's a mustard seed of faith in there. may not look like a lot, but there's faith. And it might be small, and to them it might feel like they're hanging on by a thread, but there's faith. And you know there's faith because when Martha comes to Jesus with her lament, with her complaint, she has a conversation about theology that is light years beyond anything any of the disciples have ever said to Jesus. It is far more advanced and true than anything they've said at this point. She gets it. Is she complaining about what happened? She is. Does she still have faith in Jesus? She does. Mary is not as vocally expressive, but she comes and she falls down at Jesus' feet, an act of prostration, an act of worship. And she says the exact same thing. If you had been here, he would not have died. But even in falling at his feet, there's an acknowledgement, I'm with you, and I trust you. And I may not be able to verbalize that right now. Maybe all I can get out is the complaint. But she trusts him. She has faith in him. Can I just point out to you that when Martha comes to Jesus and she laments and Mary comes to Jesus and she laments, Jesus does not rebuke either woman. He doesn't say, well, that was a little bit tacky. He doesn't say, you don't even know what I'm about to do. He welcomes it. He welcomes your lament. David was not rebuked for writing a book that is 70% lament. Jeremiah wrote a book that is 100% lament, and it made it into the Bible. When you come to God with your passionate expression of grief or sorrow or hurt or pain, and it is sanctified by a mustard seed of faith, God welcomes that. Jesus can handle that. 
Jesus doesn't turn you away when you bring your lament to Him. In fact, that's exactly what He wants you to do with your hurt and your pain, is to bring it to Him. The Gospel of Matthew, we read this, this promise, such a beautiful verse, Matthew 12, 20. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench. These two women are bruised. They're smoldering. And Jesus doesn't respond harshly to either of them. They bring their lament to Jesus, which is exactly what he wants. Number one, he welcomes our lament. Number two, you're going to like this one, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And now I'm just making you fill in different words on the big idea, but this is important. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I just want you to look in your Bible, John 11, I want you to look at verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he does not say. He does not say, Martha, I can give you resurrection and life. Martha, I'm offering you resurrection and life. Martha, I can dispense to you resurrection and life. What he says is, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This is why this matters. In the United States, Americans, American Christians, approach salvation transactionally. We are transactional people. And we approach the idea of salvation as if it were a transaction to be enacted. So we say, if you will pray this prayer, Jesus will give you eternal life. If you will do this thing, God will let you go to heaven someday. If you will perform this religious ritual in some churches or denominations, then you will get this as a result. You'll get to go to heaven when you die. And when we talk about salvation in those terms, everyone in the world would want to sign up for that because when you make the transaction really about heaven and you propose the alternative, well, it's either heaven or hell, well, no one wants hell. And you're telling me there's something I have to do. I just do this thing and then I can have heaven, we reduce the whole thing to a transaction. It's not unlike you going to an ATM machine. You drive up to the ATM machine, you put your card in, it says what language do you want, please put your PIN number in, what sort of function do you want to do, you want to withdraw money, how much money do you want, I'd like $20, do you want a receipt, yes I want a receipt, take your card out so you don't leave it, here's 20 bucks. You show up, you put something in, you get something out, it's just transactional. We approach salvation like that in the United States. This is what you do to get what you want. And Jesus in this moment of crisis is not just offering heaven. He's not just offering life or resurrection. He's offering himself. He doesn't say, I can give you resurrection and life. He doesn't say, let me offer you resurrection and life. He doesn't say, this is how you can end up with resurrection and life. He says, I am resurrection and life. And what you and I tend to do is get the, the ends and the means mixed up. 
We put the greatest end as heaven, and then we look at Jesus and say, that's how I get there. Jesus is flipping the whole paradigm on its head, and what he's saying is, I'm the end. Me. I, I am resurrection and life. If you want those things, then what you really want is me. Not a ritual, not a step, not a prayer, not a formula that you walk through and then you get a product on the other side. If you want those things, then what you're looking for is not a what, it's a who. And it's me. He is the resurrection and the life. When you get that into your head, verse 25 and 26 start to make sense. Look what Jesus says. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is where it gets sort of like a riddle. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he says, do you believe this? So just in those verses, he talks about you're going to die, but you might live. And if you live, then you won't die. And you say, Jesus, make it plain. Put the cookies on the lowest shelf. I am the resurrection and the life. What you're looking for isn't a destination or a ticket to eternity. What you're looking for is me. When you read what Jesus is actually saying about resurrection and life, and you read it in the context of the Gospel of John, particularly chapter 3, this is what Jesus is saying. And if ever there was a time when American people needed to hear it, maybe it's this week. This is what he's saying. If you are only born once, you will die twice. If, however, you're born twice, you will only die once. Think about it. If you're born once only, you will die twice. If all you experience is physical birth, you will die physically and you will die spiritually, eternally. However, if you're born again, if you're born physically and you are reborn spiritually, you can have hope that you will only die once physically. Eternal death will not touch you. And the riddle of what he's saying when he talks about dying and living and living and dying becomes very clear when you understand he's not just offering us heaven. He is heaven. He is resurrection. He is life. Number three, this one will be quick. Jesus wants us to believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God. He says this, this to Martha, and then he just looks at her, and he says, do you believe it? And we asked this question last week. The same question is posed to you this morning. Do you believe it? That's why John wrote this gospel, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And notice what Martha says. Verse 27, Jesus says, do you believe it? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Who's coming into the world. Sounds an awful lot like John 20, verse 30 and 31 that we read earlier, the thematic verse of the gospel. He did many signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's exactly what Martha said. I believe. Not just a vague, nebulous idea that there's a God or that there's a heaven or that everything's going to be okay in the end. This is what I believe. Concrete, specific, nail it down, pin it to the wall. You are the Christ. You're the one that God promised to send. You are the Son of God. Number four, last. Jesus wept and he experienced grief. Now we're at the end of 
our passage here. He weeps and he experienced grief. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I don't know about your Bible. I'm reading the ESV. There's a footnote in the ESV after the phrase deeply moved. And the footnote says maybe this word, this Greek word means indignant. What they're saying is he's deeply moved and part of that feeling is indignation or anger mixed up in there. Can I tell you something interesting? The Greek word used here in verse 33, deeply moved, indignant, is the same word that's used in some context to describe the snort of a horse. Okay? Now look, John is not saying Jesus walked in and had a big sneeze. Okay? Marshall is here this morning. If you have ever heard Marshall sneeze, maybe you sort of have an idea of what a a horse snort is like. I've read some stats this week that if you sneeze, you can shoot coronavirus 10 feet. I think Marshall could shoot it a mile. Like, it's just get out of the way. It is coming, and it's coming strong. And he's not saying Jesus walked in and shook his head and cleared his throat like a horse. But the Word gives you some sort of sense of what's going on. The Word is telling you that there's a physical reaction to what Jesus is feeling here. It's like when somebody's about to give you bad news and they say to you, are you sitting down? They don't want you to get weak in the knees and and fall or faint. They want you to sort of brace yourself. They know you're going to have a physical reaction to this. Maybe it's the feeling you get. If you can think about a time in your life where you got bad news and that pit in your stomach just opens up out of nowhere. I told you about my granddad. I remember the phone call when we were in Kentucky. Family saying, hey, it snowed last night in Wichita. Your granddad shoveled the driveway. He went in. He didn't wake up. And you get a call like that, and you just feel that pit in your stomach. You felt it. You know what it's like to to experience something, to see something, to hear something, and all you can do is just groan in response. That's sort of the idea. Jesus talks to Martha. He says, go get Mary. Mary comes out. He hears the same lament twice, word for word, and then he says, where did you put him? Where's he at? And they take him, and they get there, and Mary's crying. Verse 35, Jesus is crying, and he is deeply moved. Right? There's a physical reaction to the emotion that he's feeling. John says he was greatly troubled. That's the same language that Jesus himself uses when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion, and he says to the disciples, my soul is greatly troubled even to the point of death. I'm overwhelmed with what I'm feeling right now. My question is, and I told you we would come back to this, why? Why? Jesus of Nazareth in this moment knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will eat dinner with Lazarus. 
I am going to sit at a table with that man tonight and break bread and we're going to eat together. Why in the world is he crying? Let me just give you a few suggestions. You can think about these. Number one, I think that Jesus is showing it's, it's okay and it's normal to grieve. Sometimes we look at people who are grieving and lamenting and we want to help. We don't really know what to say, so we kind of get preachy and say, well, you just need to trust God more. Have a little more faith. Jesus has all the faith in the world. He's not lacking any faith. And he just stands there by the grave and he cries. He's greatly troubled. He's deeply distressed. He feels the indignation. He looks at his friends, Mary and Martha, and he cares about them. They're hurting and he's hurting. He's hurting because they're hurting. He thinks about his friend Lazarus and what he's gone through. He hurts for Lazarus. He's showing us it's okay to grieve. Secondly, if I can use this in a sanctified respectful way, I think he's ticked off. I think he's mad. I think that's the word, this, this idea there's indignation involved here. And part of it involves the people who are standing around him. Verse 36, some of them look at Jesus crying and they say, wow, Jesus really loved this guy. And some of them get really snarky in the next verse and they look at Jesus and they say, huh. well, he could help the blind guy, but he wasn't much help for Lazarus. And can you imagine being at a funeral and having a little crowd off to the side chirping and chipping at you, taking shots at you, doubting you? After all the signs that you've performed, they don't believe, and all they want to do is nitpick and mock and laugh. Lastly, and I think this is the big one, I think Jesus stands there. He is reminded of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is what sin introduced into my creation might have been the thought going through his head. He spoke it into existence in the beginning, John 1.1. And he looks at it and it's just a concrete, real example up in your face, up in your face the wages of sin, the consequence of sin is death. Look, Jesus knows that a few years later, the Apostle Paul is going to write 1 Corinthians 15, and the Holy Spirit's going to inspire the Apostle Paul to say, in the end, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death loses in the end. It hadn't been written yet. Jesus knew it was true. He knew it. But he also knows, or he knew, that it wasn't true yet. And in that moment, he's reminded the the wages of sin is death. And he's reminded that the consequence of these people and their sin will mean my death, his death. He's days away from his own crucifixion. He's days away from his own burial. How can he not, knowing what's coming, stand at a graveside service and not think, I'm going to die. Not just physically suffering, although that's going to be part of it, but bearing the condemnation and the punishment and the wrath of the Father for my people. I'm going to carry that. I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be beaten. And they're going to put me in a grave just like they put Lazarus in a 
grave. He uses the exact same language a few days later when he's praying with the disciples in the garden. He says, my soul is troubled. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. And he has a moment of that right here. I like this quote from John Calvin. I found it this week talking about John 11. He says, Christ does not approach the sepulcher. That's an old word for tomb. He does not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. Therefore, we need not wonder that he again groans for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. He's not just there to pay respects. He's not just there to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's there knowing, I will go through this and more for my people. Calvin says he approaches as a champion. Calvin didn't write in English. That's a translation. Some translations say he approached as a wrestler. I like that. Jesus the wrestler. He's there to wrestle with death. He's there to fight death. And he's not going to do it with a sword. He didn't bring an army. How's he going to do it? He's going to put a cross on his back. He's going to allow sinful people to nail him to that cross. He's going to die. And they're going to throw him in a tomb. That's how he wins. That's how he fights. That's what our champion does for us. And it's all described in Isaiah 52 and 53. Just read a few verses. You can go back and look at the two chapters. It says, He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. Jesus' question, John's question is simple. Do 